So uh, for anyone who doesn't know me, my name is Sam, um, and kind of the role that I have here is I am the youth pastor, uh, and so I get to look after the young people and, and do all that sort of stuff, and occasionally I get to come and I get the privilege of preaching. Um, and today I get the privilege of, of rounding up uh, the book of Joshua, so we've been in the book of Joshua for about 11 weeks now. And we've been going through different uh, parts of the book of Joshua. And can I just encourage you as we, as we finish the series, the book of Joshua does not end um, in chapters 11 and 12. It does continue. Uh, so can I just encourage you to continue to read and to study and to see God move and work in the ways that we've been seeing him move and work? Because there's some really stunning themes um, that have been coming through in the book of Joshua, haven't there? There's been this, these beautiful themes developing about God, about God's unwavering and merciful faithfulness to his people. We've seen God's righteous anger at disobedience and sin. And we've seen the importance as well of the obedience of the people of God as they step out in faith in seeing a kingdom established. And this last theme, this, this theme of obedience of God's people as they step out in seeing God's kingdom established is, is something that is gonna, we're going to look at a lot today. And it's something that potentially is developed more in chapter 11 than, than any other chapter in the book of Joshua. So I mean, we're going to read the whole chapter. Can I encourage you to just open your Bibles to chapter 11 of Joshua? Uh, it's great, as always, to, to have that open, to see that what we're saying is from the Word of God, not just something we're dreaming up or thinking up, but this is God's own words, okay? So there are lots of long names and things hard to pronounce, so bear with me if I stumble a bit. When Jabin, king of Hatzor, heard of this, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaph, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah, south of Chinneroth, and in the lowland, and in Naphoth, Dor, on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And and all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon and Misroth Main, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah, and they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord had said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hatzor and struck its king with the sword, for Hatzor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed, and he burned Hatzor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hatzor alone that Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed. 
Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So Joshua took all the lands, the hill country and all the Negeb, and all the land of Goshen and the lowlands and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowland from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle for it was the lord's doing to harden their hearts as they should that, that they should come against israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the lord had commanded moses and joshua came at that time and cut off the anakim from the hill country from hebron from debir from anab and from all the hill country of judah and from all the hill country of israel Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the, people, in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. So we're coming to the, to the end of the, of the narrative, the story of, of conquest and, and Joshua and the people of Israel taking the land. And in many ways, the story should sound really familiar to us by now. Okay? So the story, will go, the story, the book of Joshua, the first 11 chapters, mostly goes like this. The Israelites face a challenge or an enemy that they should have no hope of, of defeating or, or overcoming. God comes and tells them not to be afraid, but to trust in him, because he is the one who's going to fight for his people. Joshua and the people are obedient to what God has said, and they win an outstanding victory. Okay? And with the exception of Achan's sin in chapter 7 and the Gibeonite deception in chapter 9, that is the story of the book of Joshua. That is the theme, that is the way that it works, okay? That is how each interaction with the land and the people they're coming against happens, okay? They come against an enemy, God says, put your trust, your hope in me, do not be afraid. They're obedient and they win the victory. And it's the obedience that chapter 11 focuses on a lot because what you find in chapter 11 is in most of the other chapters, there is a big, dramatic, miraculous intervention from God. So God comes and he does something and he shows that I am the one who's winning this victory for Israel. And so, for instance, last week in chapter 10, we looked at how God did two massive things. The first is that he sent hailstones down from heaven and he destroyed more of the enemy than any of the Israelites did with their swords. And the second thing that he did is he stopped the sun in the sky so that the battle could continue so that Israel could win, okay? Miraculous intervention, huge intervention from God. And yet we don't see anything like that in this chapter, in this chapter of this last bit of the conquest of Israel. And the reason for that is that the author is doing something deliberately different. He's drawing our attention to the fact that Israel's obedience is essential for the victory, It is God who wins the victory. It is God who establishes his kingdom. It is God who is giving the land. But Israel's obedience is essential in establishing that victory in the land. And the author is wanting to pull us into this. And the way that he does that is in a couple of ways. The first is in verses 4 to 9. So we can all look at verses 4 to 9 together. And they came out with all their troops... 
a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. For tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as Great Sidon and Misroth Maim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord had said to them. He hamstrung the horses and burned their chariots with fire. Now, verse 4 is designed to be set up as a shock. It is designed to draw our attention as a reader. Because it's designed to show that this is a game changer. This is a game changer in the conquest. Okay? This is the biggest, the largest people that Israel has faced. This is the largest enemy that Israel has faced. This is the biggest army they're going to be coming against. And not only that, but they had horses and chariots. Okay? Horses and chariots were the most sophisticated military hardware of that time. If you had horses and chariots and you were on a field of battle, you would win. Okay? You would win. This was a sophisticated, equipped military machine that they had no hope of coming against. They had no hope of coming against. It should have made them shrink with fear. They are, in, for all intents and purposes, bringing a knife to a gunfight. Okay? They are outmanned and outgunned dramatically so at this point in the story. Okay? And you're supposed to be able to see this and go, how on earth are they going to face this? They've been fighting and fighting and winning and winning, but how on earth is this army going to face this, this people, this, this military machine? And once again, God says, no. I'm going to come and I'm going to provide the victory. And he does. And he, he wins the victory for them. And as he's, as, as he's saying, no, you will win this victory. You will do this. He gives this really peculiar command to hamstring the horses and burn the chariots with fire. And it seems really odd. It seems really, really odd. It seems almost out of place because we're told in verse 8 that they've won the victory. The victory is total. They have totally destroyed the enemy. The army's been overcome. Everything's been defeated. They face no threat from these people whatsoever. So why would you hamstring the horses and burn the chariots? And hamstringing the horses, um, I've read some commentaries, and, and they think it's, it's along the lines of a cu cutting the equivalent of the Achilles tendon. Um, so it's not just about cutting the hamstrings and leaving the horses to die in the dust. It's about rendering them useless for any kind of military um, any kind of military use, okay? So it's not about just being vicious and mean and cruel. It's about rendering them useless for military use. But it seems really odd. The logical thing to do, surely, would be to capture the horses, take the chariots, dissolve, put them into your army, and then use them to be the biggest military might in your area. That would be the logical thing to do. That would be the logical thing to do for Joshua. He's establishing, you know, they, they want them to, to be feared in the land. They want them to, to make sure that people don't come against them. You take the hardware, you know. If you find a tank that's empty on the field of battle, you get in the tank. You don't leave it, okay. And this is the sort of thing that was, is, is going on with Joshua at this time. So the question is, why on earth is this a command? Why on earth isn't it just 
destroy them, as it has been so many times before, defeat them, leave none alive in the armies. And the reason for this is that God has actually already spoken about this to Israel. And in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 16, he explains that the king of Israel should not amass horses for themselves. And because the temptation for Joshua, the temptation for the kings and the people of Israel is to take the horses, take the, cha- the chariots, take the fortified cities and go, we're safe. To lock themselves up and think, oh, because we've got this or we've got that, nothing can come against us. Because we've got this or got that, we are secure and that we don't have to worry anymore. And in doing so, lose trust in God. They forget the God who won them the victories. They forget the God who delivered them from slavery into the land that he had promised them. And so this command is actually almost identical to the first command of the Ten Commandments. It's about idolatry. You shall have no other gods but me. Because we know that later on in the story, that is exactly what the people of Israel do. They turn to idols. They put their trust in the things made with hand, the hands of men rather than putting their trust in the things, the God who has won the victories for them. And isn't that not a temptation in our hearts as well? That as we think about being obedient and we think about following Jesus in, in our lives and in our hearts, the temptation is to look at the stuff around us and think, if I have that, then I'll feel safe. If I have that, then I'll feel happy. If I could just have this thing or that thing, then it would all be okay. And that can be anything, absolutely anything. It can be a job, a house, a grade at school or university or college. It could be a relationship. It could be the latest tech. It could be your status as a friend. It could be your family. It could be be being right in every situation. It could be absolutely anything. And if we put our hope, our trust, our faith in those things, they become idols in our hearts and they lead us away from God. We stop trusting in God for what we need and we forget the God who sent his only son, who bore the punishment that we deserve, dying the death that was ours to die, making a way for us to be with God for all eternity. We can forget that in our hearts and it seems mad when we hear the gospel, when we think about the gospel, that we can forget those things. But just as Israel's hearts were tempted to go astray, so are ours exactly the same. Tempted to put our trust in things other than God. And in my life, this is, this is manifested in a really strange way in that I never expected kind of family to be, to be an idol in my life. And I've, I've, most of you will know that we've just had a little girl, say just she's five months old now, Olivia. And she is an absolute joy. We love her to bits. Um, and we just love being a family unit, love kind of trying to figure out what, what family looks like now, that we've got a baby in the mix and, and all of this sort of stuff. But I, I found myself just contemplating that if Livy isn't happy, then I'm not feeling very happy on that day. And I got really challenged by this because I thought, actually, my heart and my emotions and my security shouldn't be in the emotion of my child and how she's doing, which is so volatile. And it shouldn't be in how my family's doing. My security and my hope and my trust should be in God. And I've been really convicted of that. And and God's had to really work on my heart as I've, I've looked at that situation and we're trying to work out what it means to follow God now as a family unit. And if you're here today and you're putting your trust in anything other than Jesus, then the command is the same. Hamstring it. Hamstring it. Repent. 
Give it to God. Let it go. Put it aside in your heart and resolve to trust in the only one who won't fail you and the only one who's going to satisfy you. You know, for Joshua and the Israelites, being obedient to this command means that God won them the victory. That God won them the victory and they were obedient. And as they were obedient, the land was established. That their obedience led to their victory. Their obedience to not put their trust in the things around them that others have put their trust in, but to put their trust in God and they won the victory. And for us, it looks the same. So Paul summarizes this beautifully in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 to 11. This is how God calls us to be obedient. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That God has called us to be obedient and put into death the things in our lives that would lead us away from him. To seeing that he's the only one who satisfies. And that as we follow in our obedience to him, he wins the victory for us. And the way that he does this is actually fleshed out in verse 18 of this chapter. So verse, verse 18 reads, Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. And it's a very short verse in this narrative, and as a result, it's a very, very easy verse for us to miss the kind of depth and the importance of what's being said. When you've got battles and people fighting and and everything else going around, this idea that Joshua made war for a very long time can seem almost just to drift by us. We just skim through it. But actually, God is making a really important point about their obedience in that verse. And we don't have time to read all of chapter 12 today, but chapter 12 is quite literally a list of all the enemies that Moses and Joshua have defeated. And in that list, there are are enemies that we've not even read about. So in the list of enemies, it says, and Joshua defeated this king and that king and this king and that king. And we haven't even read about them in in the story so far. There's not even been time to cover all the enemies that Joshua has defeated. And it can be so easy to forget that when we read the book of Joshua, or in fact when we read all the stories in the Bible, that we are reading a narrative. We're reading the highlights, okay? We're reading the crunch points, the highs and the lows, because that's what a story is. A story is the highlights. A story is the main points, things that they're trying to prove and make a point about. And so some commentaries think that the conquest of the land took up to seven years, seven years, But we don't seem to get that feel as we read the book of Joshua. It seems a little bit like a blitzkrieg where they come in, sweep the land in six months and take everything. And the reality is that just isn't the case. That isn't the way that it works. Which means because a lot of the campaign would have been, they woke up and they either broke camp, put down their tents and marched to a new place, had dinner and went to sleep. Or they stayed where they were, had lunch, collected some water, lit a fire, chatted to some friends, had dinner and went to sleep. 
There is a lot of this journey, a lot of this conquest of this land, that in between these highlights that we read, where that is their day-to-day life. It's not dramatic, powerful encounters, but just ordinary living. And do you ever feel like that? You get up, you have your breakfast, you go about your day, and then you lie in bed at night and you think, what happened? What did I actually do today? Nothing dramatic happened, nothing spectacular happened. It's just a Tuesday. Tuesday happened. Do you ever feel like that? If you feel like that, you are experiencing normal Christianity. That is Christianity in the way it was meant to be lived. Because every character in the Bible had an awful lot of ordinary days. All these people that we hold up of heroes of the faith, Noah and Abraham, people, people like Elijah and Elisha, these people that saw incredible things, they had a lot of ordinary days. And the Bible would be an awful lot bigger and an awful lot more boring if it contained every minute detail of their lives. We think num- reading numbers in, is hard, but imagine you read this over and over. Elijah got up ate breakfast, got dressed, walked until lunchtime, ate some bread, had a nap, walked some more, emptied a stone out of his sandal, went to the toilet, got to where he was going, sat with friends, had some dinner, chatted some more with friends, went to sleep. That is not the most compelling reading. It's not the most compelling reading. And that's not what a narrative or a story is all about. A narrative and a story is designed to draw our attention to the things that we can learn from people's lives. But that is the reality for every person that we read in the Bible, every hero of the faith then and now that we hold up as people that are just walking faithfully with God. There's a lot of ordinary days. A lot, a lot of ordinary days. And Israel won the victories because they were obedient in every moment, not just in the big things. They were obedient in every day, not just in the mountaintop moments when God is doing dramatic things or crying out to God in the really hard valleys. They weren't just obedient at those points. They were obedient when they woke up and they had nothing to do that day except eat, talk to people, collect some firewood. They were obedient in that, and that's how they won the victory. Everyday obedience. And as a youth group, I feel like that's something that you, you, you feel more in a youth group almost than any other place. And, and the reason for that is because we have these huge highlights in the year. So we have, we have a youth retreat in February and we have New Day in August. And, okay? and it's so easy, the temptation is so easy to live for New Day and then youth retreat and then New Day, and then Youth Retreat, and only live for these big moments where you know, God moves in power and, and, and is doing something that he doesn't do all the time. It's so easy and tempting to go, oh no, wait for New Day and you'll see, or wait for Youth Retreat and you, you'll, you'll get it. And actually what I find myself having to repeat, not just to, to the young people, to myself, over and over and over again, is no, I just love Tuesday night life group more. I just love Sunday mornings more, that God works more on a Tuesday night life group and a Sunday morning than at New Day and Youth Retreat. He just does more work. He just does more stuff. It's the way that he works. And it is the everyday ordinary that God has called us to be obedient. The Christian life should be supernatural. Don't hear me wrong. The Christian life should be supernatural and full of adventure with God. It should be. 
but it should be in the ordinary every day of our lives. You know, the, when we actually look at our lives, the mountaintops and the valleys are in reality quite few and far between. You know, those great moments or those horrible moments, they're not happening every single day. They are few and far between. And it does look like working this out in the rhythm of our lives. As we read our Bibles, as we pray, as we go to church, as we encourage people in our life groups, as we love our families, as we laugh and cry with our friends, as we do the housework, put the kids to bed, go into work, as we share Jesus with our friends, as we pray for the sick, as we give to the needy, as we go out on the streets of Helsham and share Jesus with people. As we do that as his people together, God will work and move through us for the building of his church. He will. He'll establish the victory. And Jesus, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, this is exactly the way that he says that it works. So in the parables in, in Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 and 32, he says, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it had grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Jesus said the kingdom of God starts small, but through everyday obedience, it grows into something huge. The people of Israel at that time, when they thought about the kingdom of God, they were expecting a general Messiah who would come and wipe out the Romans, establish Israel as a military power, as a country, as a nation again, and be a formidable force. They were looking back to the days of Solomon. That's what they were expecting. And Jesus came as their king and said, now what's going to happen? It's going to start small and it's going to grow. It's going to work its way through. And you and I are sitting here as proof of that today. Something that happened 2,000 years ago in some backwater Roman province that no one ever really spoke about in the world at that time has now become the thing that has defined our lives, the thing that has defined the lives of millions of people throughout the years. And there's now something like 2 billion people that associate as Christians in the world today. And that started with 12 apostles. Started with one person, one figure on the cross. That is exactly how the kingdom of heaven is established. Everyday obedience in his people is God's plan for establishing the kingdom of God in Hailsham and in the earth. I'm just going to repeat that. Everyday obedience in his people is God's plan for establishing the kingdom of God in Helsham and in all the earth. And what this looks like for us is that this is fulfilled in Jesus. So in verse 23 it says, So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the lands had rest from war. The book of Joshua is not just an isolated story. It's not just the history of a conquering people or just the history of God's faithfulness. It is a signpost pointing towards another conqueror. A conqueror who will come and conquer sin and death and Satan, establishing forever an eternal kingdom. 
Joshua points towards a greater conqueror. Jesus is the greater Joshua. And we see this paralleled in this verse. So Joshua took the promised land. Joshua fought and Joshua won it as he was obedient to God. Jesus is the king of the whole earth. Colossians 1, 16 to 18 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus is the greater Joshua. See, Joshua was marked by by his obedience to God. And he was. Joshua was obedient to God. You know, we we read in verse 15 that just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Joshua was obedient. Obedient to everything he'd been told to do. Philippians 2, verse 6 to 8, says this of Jesus. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a human, of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus is the better Joshua. And Joshua divided the land into inheritance for the tribes of Israel. This is a defining moment in Israel's history. This is everything they've been waiting for since Abraham. The land being taken and theirs and being divided up that they would have an inheritance. It is the culmination of the promise that God has given to Abraham. But through his death on the cross, Jesus made a way so that all people from every tribe, every nation, every language can have an inheritance. And that inheritance in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 is described as an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's imperishable. It can never, ever fade. It can never, ever be taken from us. It can never, ever be moved. It can never, ever be soiled or dirtied by sin or the effects of people. The inheritance that we have got is one that will never, ever fail, never, ever change. It is an everlasting inheritance, and it is the new creation where God renews all things and the dwelling place of God is with man and there is no even need for the sun because God himself will be the light. There'll be no sin and no pain and no death and no sickness, no sin or effects of it ever again for all eternity. That is the inheritance that Jesus has won for the people of God. Jesus is the better Joshua. And finally, through Joshua, the land had rest from war. And although the land had been conquered by the people of Israel... This, this, this land, this rest, this conquering that, that had happened, it was only going to last a generation. At the end of the book of Joshua, it says that the people of God were obedient to God, whilst Joshua, and then after him, the elders that existed when he led, were alive. 
when they died off, we read in the first chapter of Judges, everyone had gone their own way. Everyone had done their own thing. The rest that Joshua had given lasted a generation. And it was only in part. They'd conquered the land, but it wasn't submitted. There's still many enemies within it. And we see this in the Philistines. The Philistines remained in the land and they were enemies to Israel for a long time. It was a partial rest. And it wasn't a very long-lived one. Jesus... Jesus is the Sabbath rest for the people of God. Jesus made an end for us to striving to be made right with God, to be perfect. Jesus gave us rest from desperately trying to be accepted and known and loved and valued and trying to get that from every which way that we could by looking at us and saying, I know you, I love you, and I've made a way for you to be with me. See, Jesus is the Prince of Peace, the one who will actually end all war, all hatred, all division, all disunity for all eternity. Jesus, he's the better Joshua. I'll just end with this. God has called us as his people to not be afraid, but to be strong and courageous because he has promised that we will see the kingdom of heaven established in Helsham and beyond as we live our lives in daily obedience to Jesus, the greater Joshua. We will see the kingdom of heaven established in Helsham and we'll see it as we are every day obedient to him, walking in what he's told us to, in his strength, by the power of his Holy Spirit. And this is just a few responses that I just feel like God was, was saying off the back of this. The first is, if you're here today and that you haven't given Jesus, your life to Jesus, you haven't put your trust and, and hope and faith in him, then come to him as the only one who will never fail you, the only one who could possibly satisfy you. And the other is that off the back of what we were saying, if you as a Christian are putting your hope or your trust that you recognize within yourself that your heart is being pulled astray by something, then repent of that. Give it to God. Hamstring it in your life and put your faith and trust in God alone. And if you're unsure or feel like you can't, you, you don't feel like you're ever going to see that victory or, or you're, un, you're afraid of, of stepping out in obedience to God and the things that you know he's called you to, you come and receive prayer this morning. Because God has called you to be obedient and God has equipped you to, with everything you need to be obedient. Would you come and would you receive this morning that God will work with you and through you that we may see the kingdom of heaven established in Helsham. Just invite the band up as, as we pray. Lord, thank you for all that you have done in this series on the book of Joshua. Lord, thank you for all that we have seen of your mercy, of your faithfulness, of your goodness. Thank you that we, all that we have seen of you fighting for your people, of you winning the victories, of you establishing your promise and fulfilling all that you have said. Thank you that we've seen what it means when, when the, your people are disobedient and sin against you. 
And thank you that we've seen that you call us to co-labor with you, to partner with you in the victory, to be obedient to what you've said, and that as we do so, you've promised that we will see that victory established in our lives around us. Holy Spirit, would you confirm and seal the work that you've done in this in our hearts? Lord, would you continue and increase the work which you are doing in our lives? We ask all these things in your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen. You have been listening to a sermon from Christchurch Hailsham. For more information or to contact us, visit ChristchurchHailsham.org.